Welcome to London in the year 1101. We have another political crisis. The weather sucks again and many of the priests of the city are holding on to a rather dark secret. Well, technically it wasn't a secret as everyone knew about it. Not so much a dark secret, more a political hot potato that was the source of much argument. Simply put, many of the priests were married, openly. And this led to an incident that caused one of the most unusual protests in London's history. Awesome, huh? And so we have all of this in the first decade of the 12th century, plus an amazing new queen, another invasion from Normandy, and now this episode comes with added volcanoes. Who says history is boring? Hi there, my name is Saul and this is chapter 57 of The Story of London, a podcast that literally tells the story of the city from ancient days until present times. Each episode stands alone as a snapshot into life during a certain era, but taken together they form a mammoth attempt to try and tell the fascinating and amazing story of what I think is the single most exciting city on earth. There currently exists over 33 hours worth of material now posted, and we still have over 900 years to go. Something tells me I may be here for a while. This podcast exists due to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank the subscribers who've kept us going for another week and maintained my caffeine addiction, which, as you probably can tell, is the fuel to drive this insane task of mine. If you find this podcast entertaining, and I am genuinely amazed and grateful that you do, you can help uh, by supporting it via the membership page over on my Buy Me A Coffee site, or you could make a one-off contribution, or if you don't have the funds or don't wish to do that, then I will be humbled by simply leaving a nice review or giving the show five stars, which impresses the uncaring algorithms that dictate how much attention a podcast gets. And with all of that said, we come to the first decade of the 12th century, and the medieval city begins to come into focus. Welcome, then, to the tears of barefoot priests. So, since this episode spends a lot of time talking about religion and priests, I must take a moment to make a confession to you. I have to correct an error I made last episode. Due to being behind schedule on the production of that last episode and having to rush the editing and the music adding and whatnot, I missed an error in my writing and I said something that was factually inaccurate. Luckily, it was not directly related to London's history, but still, when I said some years previous to William Rufus being killed in the New Forest, a relative had died there in a riding accident, I incorrectly said it was his brother. It wasn't his brother, it was his nephew, the illegitimate son of Duke Robert, a kid called Richard. But there it is, as I've always said, I will always correct myself when I know I've made a mistake. Anyway, let's get into the story. When you look at the first decade of London in the 12th century, we see much happening in the city and around it. Since this episode is named after priests and all things religious, 
We'll start with that then. In terms of the city's relationship with God, London was really starting to show its devotion, with new churches being built both inside the city with its growing population and also in the towns and villages around it. Now these places were separate from London, and in fact I only mention them because in time London would absorb them, and now, now they are districts of London, linked by road and tube, bus and postcode. Over in Bow, the convent of St. Leonard Bow was constructed around the year 1101, we think, maybe a few years earlier, while on the other side of the city, in Kensington, in what is today's Kensington High Street, the Church of St. Mary's Abbot was constructed to allow the residents continue their worship of God around 1102. Arguably the most important church build during this time was the one done in 1106, St. Mary Over the Water, built just south of the River Thames in Southwark. 300 years from now, the great London antiquarian John Stowe will maintain that there had been a nunnery supposedly built on this site, dedicated to St. Swithin, but while John Stowe is awesome, as far as I can tell there exists no physical evidence for this nunnery. There was a priory on the site of today's Southwark Cathedral. There is some confusion as to the exact sequence of events about its construction, but what we can say with a degree of surety is that back in 1086 in the pages of Doomsday, there is a minster church located here under the jurisdiction of the landlord of the town, Odo of Bayeux. 30 years later, in 1106, where we are now, it became a priory run under the Augustine Order of Monks, but it was more the secular bunch than regular monks within it, meaning that particular branch were not isolated from their local community and rather administered to the needs of that local community. Within it was a hospital dedicated to treating the sick, an institution that would outgrow the priory and soon be established just a short distance away by itself, and would be named in time St. Thomas's Hospital. However, at the time, this church, like many in London, was dedicated to the Virgin Mary, and to differentiate it from the countless others, also dedicated to her under the name St. Mary, it was called St. Mary's Over on the Other Side of the Thames, or St. Mary's Over the Water, or as was pronounced at the time, St. Mary Overee. St. Mary's Overy would at some point in the next few decades be patronised by two of the Anglo-Saxon nobility. The first was a man called William Pont de l'Acri, who would go on to become an important courtier for both Henry I and the regime afterwards, with some belief that he may have risen to the rank of Chancellor. William was famed from his estates that he owned a stone house in London, and that alone would have denoted him as one of the richer residents of the city. And he, along with a man called William Dewey, are named as the founders or re-founders of St. Mary Overy, along with the Bishop of Winchester, with serious construction of the church being done around 1106 and 1107. However, given William's life, his involvement may have come some time later, with several sources insisting he would have only been about 11 in 1106, so I don't really know. I do know that St. Mary Overy and St. Thomas's Hospital were to leave an indelible footprint upon Southwark, and I'm going to start dating them from here. In 1107, we see another St. Mary's Church constructed, this one being St. Mary Aldermanybury, while over by Aldgate in 1108, 
Holy Trinity Priory was constructed on the site of today's Mitre Street and Duke's Place. Holy Trinity Priory, also known as Christchurch, was the largest of the city's religious houses for some time, and it was also given over to secular Augustine monks like St. Mary Overy. In many ways, the establishment of Holy Trinity really signified the rise and status of the Augustine Order of Monks over the Benedictine Order of Monks in terms of patronage and profile in London. 1107 also saw the end of an era in terms of church affairs in London. One of London's most high-profile bishops, Maurice, former Chancellor of England, who had served both William I and William II and had crowned Henry I passed quietly in September that year. And his replacement was a man called Richard D. Belmius, who, like Bishop Maurice, was a serious player politically. Bishop D. Belmius is famed for supposedly doing more than Maurice did to push the rebuilding of St. Paul's. Tradition says the majority of work done on the Grand Church was done during his tenure in office. And in many ways, the old St. Paul's, the one that existed before it was destroyed in 1066, was his work. He was ultimately not a priest who became a bishop. By all accounts, Richard was a worldly man, an administrator and civil servant to the king who Archbishop Anselm had to ordain as a priest first before he could make him a bishop. He was a, a royal appointee, and his position was problematic to Anselm, who nevertheless confirmed him as Bishop of London in 1108. Belmius was a spiky character, and his arguments and rows really give the impression of an ideal Bishop of London, opinionated, willing to get stuck in, and damn stubborn. What kind of arguments? Well... A slight diversion away from London for a bit to discuss a big row in church circles. As always, the explanations I give are insanely simplified, with genuinely staggering amounts of detail and nuance being missed out. But in a nutshell, under the rule of William Rufus, the relations between church and state were strained. Archbishop Anselm, who would eventually become, in my opinion, the patron saint of Karens, was in self-imposed exile, so he didn't have to share the country with that awful king, Rufus. But with the death of the king, this had allowed Henry I offer an olive branch to the archbishop to come back home, start things over again, wipe the slate clean. It should probably come as a surprise to none when I say that Anselm's response to the king was to issue a whole new list of complaints and demands about just how he wanted things to be before he could even think about returning. Henry I, desperate for support for his reign and regime, especially in the face of his older brother's claim, kind of had to take it. And eventually, Anselm returned and began filling a host of vacant bishoprics and abbot positions and ordaining a load of men to become priests, including our new Bishop of London, and slowly, things kind of began to stabilise. Kind of. There were still a lot of tensions and debates going on. The problem was, across in Europe, Pope Urban II was on his own ecclesiastical crusade, making it so that any bishop or archbishop who'd been appointed by a king should be removed, because he felt that the church should appoint church positions. Anselm was big on this. Now, there is more to it than just this, but it will do for this story, even if some may object to me portraying Anselm as a high-strung drama queen. 
Dear listener, there are many academics who will insist I am being unfair towards Anselm of Canterbury and will say he was a learned and politic archbishop navigating a great era of geopolitical change and theological debate. There, I've said it. St. Anselm can now stop asking to speak to my manager now, I hope. Anyway, one of the targets of Anselm's anger towards the end of his life was the Archbishop of York, a chap called Thomas. Now, Thomas was a man beloved in York and came from a long line of clerics. His uncle was Thomas of Bayeux, a former bishop of the city, and his father was none other than the Bishop of Worcester. (laughs) Thomas was born into this role, raised to be a priest, raising to become a royal chaplain, before being elevated by the clergy of York to be their archbishop. One of the reasons they wanted him was Thomas was a great big cheerleader for York Minster and didn't like the whole Canterbury is above York status quo situation. So he stalled his consecration by Archbishop Anselm because he didn't want to, in his oath of becoming Archbishop, say that he'd obey or swear allegiance to Canterbury. In fact, successfully stalled his consecration until the sickly Anselm of Canterbury finally died, and the Italian was to start his long journey to sainthood. But then came the issue of who would ordain Thomas as Archbishop and give him his pallium. Turns out that Bishop D. Belmius of London, along with, it seems, every other bishop in England, were not happy with this Thomas chap and had insisted he swear an oath to obey Canterbury or else none of them would ordain him. Thomas eventually seemed to back down. He swore an oath to get the job, and and his pallium was granted to him by a visiting cardinal from Rome. Now, I'm telling you this story just to illustrate a dramatic argument that took place a few years later. An argument caused, to offer my own personal opinion here, because I really do feel Bishop D. Belmius of London really didn't like Archbishop Thomas of York because of all this nonsense, and he was clearly needled by him. It all came to a head in 1109. At the Christmas court in Westminster, the debate came up about who should officiate the Christmas Day Mass celebration. Archbishop Thomas said, well, you know, since the Archbishop of Canterbury was vacant since the blessed Anselm's death, that made him the senior bishop in the country. And of course, he should be the one to officiate the ceremony. Bishop D. Belmius snarled back. Yes, Canterbury was vacant, but in this gap as Bishop of London, he was the senior bishop and dean of the province of Canterbury, the name given to the entire southern jurisdiction of the archbishopric, and that made him the archbishop's deputy. And when you think about it, Tommy boy, the last bishop of London, Maurice, he'd been the guy who put the crown on the king's head. So if anyone was going to be doing the Christmas mass, me old China, it was going to be the bishop of London. And so the Christmas mass was duly held and the Bishop of London officiated it. And afterwards, Thomas of York was clearly annoyed as hell because the argument about this started up again. And it continued 
and it continued into the Christmas feast. And we all know how awkward it is when you're trying to have Christmas dinner and there are just two guests just unwilling to back down from an argument and things are getting more and more heated and more and more words are said until finally King Henry is supposed to have said, will you both just shut the f*** up and piss off? Accounts say Henry sent both bishops home, a bigger burden to Thomas of York to be honest, and that was that. I just like this story as the image of the bolshy Bishop of London deciding he was not going to stand for some loudmouthed Yorkshire git turning up on his manor and acting like he was Daddy Big Bollocks appeals to my sense of humour. Certainly, given that I get this account from Professor Tout of the University of Manchester, in lieu of some modern academic discovering the story is bunk, I'm going to recite it with joy. The first decade of the 12th century does seem to be focused on matters spiritual, does it not? And this is manifested in a throwaway moment elsewhere. As I mentioned a couple of chapters ago, London now had its first resident Jewish population. And it's clear that some in the town were having to come to terms with this. Not in a big way. But we see the abbot of Westminster Abbey, Gilbert Crispin, obviously approach this new population with some interest. Gilbert Crispin was a big cheese in terms of the history of the Abbey of Westminster, and he ran the place well. He also gained a degree of fame for his writings. He was a student of the late Archbishop Anselm, and his work is valued by scholars of the period to this day. But during his lifetime, the Abbot of Westminster gained a degree of international fame for a book he wrote, Disputatio Judea Cum Christiano, The Debate of the Jew with the Christian. This had Gilbert writing down a debate between himself and a Jewish scholar. It was not presented in the form of a conversation, but consists of seven set speeches on either side. Those of the Jewish participant who raises objections to how Christians conducted themselves and their faith were much shorter than those of the Christian respondent who has to make somewhat elaborate replies, and also has to carry on with a counter-attack. It sounds like an excuse for some horrendous anti-Semitism, does it not? And yet the whole treatment is surprisingly fair. Yes, the Christians seem to have all the answers and the last word, and there is no way Abbot Crispin would allow the Jewish representative to get the upper hand. And yet there is a surprising degree of fairness in the treatment of the debate. The difficulties propounded by the Jew are genuine difficulties with Christianity, and to some of them a fully satisfactory reply cannot easily be given. There is no loss of temper on either side, and at the end there is no token of surrender nor note of triumph. It really does feel like it was based on the abbot conversing with a learned Jewish scholar of the Torah and Talmud on matters theological. The document claimed the Jewish scholar was originally from Mainz before coming to London. I can't verify that. And it also claims afterwards this Jewish scholar was so moved he freely converted to Christianity, a claim I'm going to take with a fistful assault as nothing Gilbert Crispin says is actually strong enough to make anyone convert to his version of the faith. But the grounded nature of the complaints given by the Jewish scholar do contain an element of authenticity for me. For example, there is a passage midway through it, and I apologise in advance because my Latin sucks, and 
any translation I'm giving is ropey at best. But it appears that the Jewish scholar is complaining about the violence done to the Old Testament by contemporary Christian scholars. And he says in a throwaway line, quote, You Christians speak many things concerning the law and the prophets, which are not written in the law and the prophets, unquote. And he illustrates this by pointing out that Christians quote Isaiah, saying he wrote, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Isaiah did not say this. He did not write this. But only behold, she says, she will conceive in secret and give birth to a son. You claimed he did. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And go so far as to say that the virgin remained a virgin after the birth. Neither Isaiah nor any prophet said this, unquote. Again, this is a brutally awful translation, but the gist of it is basically right. It really does read like a debate based on a little civilized slice of theological discussion. 12th century Western Roman Catholicism versus Talmudic Judaism. My money would be on the Talmudic scholar, if I'm honest. Yet this book, Disputatio Judea Cum Christiana, offers us a little insight into something often overlooked and unseen. Here was an exchange between a Christian resident of London in the early 1100s and a Jewish resident of the city. And it did not involve violence or anger. No mention was made of money or fear of pogrom. Here is what appears to be individuals of two diverse communities trying to talk about their differences in belief. Given the hatred, bloodshed and murder that was to come directed at that community, it's nice to find London, even a minute aspect of it, suddenly being so reasonable. That first decade of the 12th century saw London facing a lot of seriously bad weather. In 1102, we have records of a drought and excessive heat, but such a scorching summer was to be short-lived, and there was a reason for this. In Iceland, the volcano known as Mount Hecla erupted in 1104. This eruption poured vast amounts of volcanic ash into the atmosphere, which we believe caused massive environmental impacts for years afterwards. We suspect that the dust cloud caused the loss of crops, that impacted upon Britain. And the Anglo-Saxon entry for 1104 says, quote, It is not easy to describe the misery of this land, unquote. The weather and the dust cloud carried on for some time, because the entry in 1105 goes on to say, quote, This was a very calamitous year in this land, through loss of fruits and through the manifold contributions that never ceased, unquote. I have read that the darkening of the skies caused by the massive cloud of dust was noted across Europe. And at least one meteorological organization I was reading during the research of this believes that the Helka eruption may have contributed to the weather ruining crops as late as 1110. And whether it was caused by Helka or not, the winter of 1110 and 1111 was vicious. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that 1110 itself had been a brutal year before the winter. Quote, this was a very calamitous year in this land. Through the badness of the weather by which the fruits of the earth were very much marred and the produce of the trees over all this land almost entirely perished, unquote. And then along comes that brutal winter, with again the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle going on to say, quote, 
This year was the winter very long, and the season heavy and severe, and through that were the fruits of the earth sorely marred, and there was the greatest moraine of cattle that any man could remember." Unquote. Again, this nation was fragile. Bad weather could cripple it, and London would have shivered with hungry tummies as the skies above darkened and the temperature dropped. The era we're looking at in this episode is, climatically speaking, a grim time for all. The main political saga that Londoners during this decade were probably talking about had to be the wild, continued adventures of Ranulf Flambard, the wheeler, the dealer, the man himself. Ranulf, a man who I profiled a couple of chapters ago, we last heard about last chapter, when he'd been arrested weeks after the coronation of Henry as king. His close association with the tax-heavy regime of William Rufus had been enough to make him one of the most hated characters in England at the time. And so Henry clapping him in irons was a popular move designed to gain the support of the nobility and the church. As I went into some detail last episode, Henry had made moves designed to appease the general population. And before anyone goes, why would a medieval king like Henry, son of William the Conqueror, want to appeal to the general population? I just need to remind you that when his brother Rufus had usurped the throne, he'd faced a rebellion of the great and good of the English nobility, and had only survived due to the stalwart support of the sheriffs of England, London accepted. So Henry had done some things to cement some support from the general population, including marrying a lady who was off the line of Alfred the Great and making her queen, but he also did some very obvious things to appease the landowners, like the Coronation Charter of Liberties. And the one thing he did that kind of appealed to everyone to take that slick Rick Tyfe that was Ranulf, blame him for everything, and hold him in captivity for trial on charges of embezzlement. Ranulf was arrested on August 15th, 1100, and held in custody until February 3rd, 1101. Henry wanted such a high-profile figure in a high-profile prison, and as such, Ranulf Flambard's second biggest claim to fame was that he was the first prisoner ever kept within the Tower of London. Here he was locked in while Archbishop Anselm worked up a case against him, being as Ranulf was technically now the Bishop of Durham, and as such it would be the Archbishop of Canterbury who would oversee his trial. And now the story gets really murky. See, apparently old moneybags Ranulf wasn't being kept in some small dingy cell. It wasn't like that. He mostly seemed to have the tower to himself, and he was able to afford to spend lavishly on nice bedding and good food, and apparently he lived quite comfortably. What makes this whole story really interesting, at least for people like me who love how small London was back then, was who his jailer was, William de Mandeville, the son of Geoffrey de Mandeville, who was in charge of the Norman occupation forces from chapters 49 to 53 of this podcast. See, after Geoffrey de Mandeville's rebellion against William Rufus, he had lost his position as Portreeve of London and Sheriff of Middlesex, but the position of the Warden of the Tower he had retained, and had passed to his son and heir, William, and this was why William de Mandeville was in charge of the Tower of London when Ranulf Flambard was incarcerated. And in 1101, Flambard earned his biggest claim to fame. 
he became the first ever person to escape from the Tower of London. Now, the traditional story goes that Ranulf concocted an elaborate plan. He paid for a load of very decent wine to be brought into him, three large barrels worth, or three large skins worth, along with fine and rich food. But the wine was the main thing. On this, he served liberally to his guards. As they ate his food and drank his booze, Ranulf smiled and laughed and the guards became increasingly drunker and drunker, until eventually they were all insensible with liquor and then passed out. And at that, well, at the bottom of one of these wine barrels or wineskins, Ranulf produced a rope that had been smuggled in, attached it firmly, shimmied down out of a window, and then over the wall that may or may not have been completed at this point, and into a waiting boat which spirited him out of England along with a lot of gold and his elderly mum. That's the traditional version of this story. And now for the cynics in the room. Ranulf could have just paid de Mandeville a huge amount of gold to look the other way, walked out calmly, got into a boat and sailed off. You can decide which version works best for you. Certainly, King Henry did not believe de Mandeville could not have been involved in the escape and he fined him a staggering amount of gold and seized one-third of the de Mandeville estates. Now, this could be not that he didn't believe him, it could just be King Henry was the kind of man who punished failure harshly. But I mention this forfeiture because that was going to become really important for London later on. But we'll get to that. All we need to say now is that Ronald Flambard sailed away over the horizon, and there's where his story ends. Actually, I'm completely lying. His story's only just started. See, Renalf didn't sail anywhere. He crossed the channel and made a beeline for Rouen. And here he offered his services to Duke Robert of Normandy. I mean, think about it. Not only was Renalf a brilliant wealth generator, he was also a man with a proven track record in administration, logistics, and organization. Renalf had effectively ran England for William Rufus. He understood England perhaps better than anyone else. So within weeks of being arrested by Henry I, he's now in Normandy offering his services to Henry's older brother, Duke Robert, a man whose default setting is incompetence and dissolution. Why did Robert accept his service? Well, it wasn't necessarily for cash, as he'd married a rich widow on the way back and had paid off his mortgage with her fortune. But he probably did recognise Ranulph's fantastic organisational skills. And almost immediately, Ranulf was able to make a huge impact upon Duke Robert's court. It was Ranulf who seems to have convinced Robert to go for the English throne. He was the oldest son of the Conqueror. He should be heir. And in 1101, he gave his new Duke some serious support. He'd managed to help organise and finance a fleet for Duke Robert, and before later supplementing this by causing some English ships to also go over to Normandy's side. It became real clear, real fast, the Duke Robert of Normandy was going to invade England. And so, running scorecard here, we talk about the Norman invasion of 1066, but I think we should mention that the invasion of the Duke of Normandy in 1101 represents three generations of the same family invading England. Robert the Devil tried to invade to put Edward the Confessor on the throne, but got blown, of course. His son, William the Bastard, did that whole invasion in 1066, and now his son, Robert, was invading again. 
London would have heard that Henry I moved his army south to intercept his older brother's forces around Pevensey, near the places their father had landed. But either Robert was being exceptionally brilliant, or Arnulf kind of knew what Henry's plans were going to be, as the invasion landed in Portsmouth and gained a foothold. To our residents of London here and now, the action seems to take place far from the city, but they watched as Robert's invasion seemed to be gathering speed when he suddenly flounders and agrees to a negotiated settlement. In a decision that confounds several historians of the man I've read, Duke Robert agrees to Henry keeping the throne of England and saying he'll be content with Normandy, and then he sails back home. Of course, astute observers in London at the time would have perhaps seen the clause in the Treaty of Alton that said Ranulf Flambard was forgiven for his many accused crimes and perhaps seen his hand in this resolution. Ranulf eventually did return to Durham and as a bishop there apparently did live a mostly respectable older life. But from Londoners' point of view, the conflict between King Henry and Duke Robert in the first decade of the 1100s, that only just started. Robert was accused of stirring rebellion and discontent in England, which he probably didn't do, and eventually in 1106, Henry invaded Normandy and defeated Robert in battle. Duke Robert was finally captured and jailed by his baby brother, and was to spend the next 28 years imprisoned in England and Wales, and Henry I was technically the overlord of England and Normandy. Securing Normandy, however, was to occupy much of King Henry's time going forward, and indeed it could be argued that the decisions made by Henry I to hold on to his father's holdings in northern France were to dictate the next few centuries of English history, but I'm going to save that for another time to talk about. But if the City of London had any dealings with the royal family during this decade, it would not be with King Henry as much as his queen, Matilda of Scotland. This remarkable woman seems to have decided to do something different from any other monarch, whereas the kings of England had, as you may have realised, spent their time travelling around the country or waging wars, and they would visit Westminster a few times a year. The Queen seems to have resided in Westminster as her default setting. As such, she really does become the first royal to spend extended time near London, and this she gains her own mention in the story of the city. Matilda really does impress the heck out of me as a queen, and in her life you see some of the fire of her illustrious forebears. She'd been placed in a monastery as a young girl, ostensibly to improve her education. But as young as 13, she was politically a much sought-after marriage match. The story goes that the abbess of the convent she was in, who happened to be her maternal aunt, had tried to protect her from the assiduous, ambitious Normans by insisting she take the veil and become a nun. But we Edith, as she was called back then, had apparently torn the nun's habit off her head, stomped on it, and refused to take holy orders. She intended to live her life outside of the walled compound of a nunnery. This stubborn streak manifested itself very soon after. Still aged only 13 or 14, she got word that her father, King Malcolm III of Scotland, and her older brother had been killed in one of Scotland's many wars at the same battle, and then a few weeks later she heard her mother had died, apparently of heartache. 
And at this point, it appears that Edith, now orphaned, had jumped the wall to her convent and run off. We know in 1093, Archbishop Anselm wrote a letter to the Bishop of Salisbury demanding that, quote, the daughter of the late King of Scotland be returned to the monastery she had left, unquote. But Edith didn't return. We suspect heavily that she got to the royal court of William Rufus, and there she met with her surviving brothers who'd fled Scotland, and her uncle, Edgar Etherling, and that she became one of this court, advocating for the restoration of her younger brothers to the Scottish throne, which had been usurped by her uncle. Eventually, in 1097, Edgar had helped Edith's brother, also called Edgar, take the Scottish throne, which is why we suspect he wasn't sailing about during the First Crusade, going back to that episode I did on the First Crusade. We also suspect that over the years that had just passed, with her hanging around in the court, she came to the attention of another high-born member of the court, Prince Henry, King Rufus's younger brother. The contemporary historian Odoric Vitalis claimed Henry had, quote, long adored, unquote, Edith's character, and his peer, William of Malesbury, claimed that Henry had, quote, long been attached, unquote, to her. Please note, at no point did this stop Henry basically shagging for England, and the man had over 20 kids. All bar two of them were illegitimate. But anyway, he decides he wants to marry Edith. But there was an issue about marrying her. She was AWOL from a convent. And so if Henry wanted to marry her, an investigation had to be ordered into her past. Because you're not allowed to marry nuns. The Archbishop of Canterbury was placed in charge. And the ageing Anselm seems to have absolutely crapped himself at the idea. So he summoned a jury of bishops and they questioned Edith. And she had stood her ground and eventually was found to have never actually been a nun. And as such, she was free to marry Henry, which, as I said, happened back in November 1100, whereupon she took the regnal name of Matilda. Historians love to say that she probably took that name because it made her sound more Norman to her Norman husband. And that's a very valid and probable explanation. But can we also point out that Edith took the name of the king's dead mum? Yeah. Edith Matilda was no wallflower, but an active and energetic queen in her own right. According to the historian Lisa Hilton, Matilda became known as a patron of musicians and poets and scholars, filling a court at Westminster with poetry and with her own style of luxury. She wasn't into ostentatious displays of wealth, and it, apparently both her and Henry seemed to have been somewhat parsimonious when it came to gregarious displays of wealth, so much so that historian Lois Honeycutt claimed the nickname given to them by their courtiers were Godric and Godiva, a sly allusion to them being somewhat rustic and Mercian in their appearance, but that would only have been in comparison to the veritable peacock that was William Rufus and his love of overtly expensive shoes. Whatever the case, Queen Matilda did act as regent of England several times, especially when Henry began spending increasing time on military campaigns across in France and Normandy. And she was clearly the head of his court, and she displays a strong, level-headed competence. She wasn't entirely based in Westminster the whole time. We know she did travel around England, and she even visited Normandy for a while in 1106 and 1107. 
but she was focused on London and the surrounding region. The formation of Holy Trinity, I mentioned earlier, that was done under her patronage. And while she never took holy orders, she never forgot her time in a convent. Queen Matilda was said to have built the first ever bridge across the River Bow to help the nuns there travel to and from the convent, again, which I mentioned earlier. Matilda comes across in all ways as Henry's partner, an active participant in the many debates and issues going on around her. During the debates between the new king and the aging Archbishop Anselm I mentioned earlier, Matilda acted as a mediator between her husband and the Archbishop on several issues. And Queen Matilda, being based in Westminster, was to play a role in the final part of this week's chapter. And to understand that role, we need to understand something kind of unique about England at this time. The problem I'm about to describe was taking place across Europe, but England seemed to be suffering badly from it. And that problem was, well, there were a lot of married priests. I suppose anyone who is familiar with the modern incarnations of the Anglican Church or the Evangelical or Protestant versions of Christianity would find the idea of married priests not surprising at all. But this is supposed to be the medieval Roman Catholic Church here. Priests are supposed to be celibate, right? Well, yes, in principle they were supposed to be, but it clearly wasn't the case. In fact, in England, priests were well known to often be married. You get an idea of just how bad this problem was in a letter from 1107, written by Pope Urban II and addressed to Archbishop Anselm. The Pope's observations within that letter really reflect the state of things in England. When commenting upon the particular circumstances of the English Church, the Pope observed that the greater and more valuable part of the clergy were the sons of priests. This is where the likes of Archbishop Thomas of York come into the picture. He was the son of a bishop and his uncle was an archbishop and now he's an archbishop. Certain titles appeared to be running in families. Now we can't say there had not been attempts to try and deal with this issue before. There had. Back at the Synod of Winchester held in 1076, it was decreed that no canon should be married, and those who wanted to join clerical ranks and were not married were forbidden to become so afterwards. Indeed, the Synod of Winchester said bishops were required not to ordain deacons or priests unless they declare that they were unmarried. However, the Synod made no ruling to say that the married parochial clergy were required to put away their wives. And the stipulations, well, they seem to have been ignored. Twenty-five years had passed, an entire generation, and the status quo remained. Around 1102, there was a national synod held at Westminster under the auspices of Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury and this sought to draw a line on the issue much more strictly. The Synod ordered that no clergy above the rank of subdeacon was allowed to be married. Added to that, it forbade any married priest from saying Mass, and forbade the laity from attending any Mass being conducted by a married priest. This was much stricter, but the real kicker was in the small print. Not only did the priests who were married have to put aside their wives and families, those families were forbidden to inherit the priest's benefice. You could not inherit your father's church position. This 
was an economic move, because your average benefits came with a fixed income or property. Under proposed changes to church rules, those priests who were married were not allowed in the event of their deaths to grant anything to their wives and children, and these proposed rule changes caused immediate disquiet amidst the priests of the land. Making the priests worry all the more acute was the idea that King Henry was in that part of his reign where he seemed to be going along with anything Archbishop Anselm proposed. So it appeared as if the king was about to take the rule at the Synod of Westminster and turn it into the law. The situation was big enough and bad enough that the priests of London staged a protest. I do not know, based on the scant records I have seen, if all the protesting priests came from London or resided in London, or if London was just chosen due to its proximity to Westminster and the Queen, because that made it an ideal place for the priests from across the country to demonstrate in. All I do know is that apparently the demonstration did take place. There is a story I saw repeated by the excellent historian John Gillingham, which says that over 200 of them walked in barefoot procession across the rain-soaked streets of London, pitifully calling upon the king to show mercy to them and their families, and calling out for the sake of their poor wives and sons and daughters who would be left ruined without the support they could give them. The protests were so intense, the priest's humble supplication to their king so emotional, it was said that Queen Matilda was moved to tears at the piteous sight of them. The story goes that she wanted to ask her husband to show these simple men of faith some mercy from the edict, that he would hold off on enforcing this ban, but she was too afraid of incurring the king's anger. At least that's how the story goes. Matilda may have said something because the truth is, the issue is not solved, far from it. Indeed, almost two decades on from this chapter, at another National Church Synod held at London, the assembled bishops of England once again placed the power to enforce celibacy upon the clergy of England into the hands of Henry I, and he disappointed them by abstaining from any attempt to do so. Was he in the 1120s merely carrying on something he'd started to do in the early 1100s? Perhaps. We also know that in the 1120s, King Henry I actually allowed married priests keep their wives after obtaining a license to do so. A license that cost quite a steep sum of money. The king was said to have raised a great amount of revenue from the fees charged by this device. For me, the chances are, if he did this in the late 1120s, I think we can assume with a fair degree of accuracy, he probably did the same in the first decade of the 1100s. Maybe the Queen's tears did move him to look the other way. Or maybe he just saw a unique business opportunity. But as the miserable weather continues, we close out the year 1111, and we will leave London with its piteous barefoot priests no doubt thankful that they could continue 
to maintain their wives and children for a small fee. As I said in the introduction, this practice was being done openly. The past is indeed a strange place to visit at times, I feel. But I will leave it there. Next week will be the first anniversary of the story of London, which is quite amazing for me. I'd like to thank everyone who's joined me on this strange journey so far, and I genuinely hope I can continue to tell the city's tale at least for another year. By way of celebrating, I'm hoping that next week, to commemorate our first year anniversary, I'm going to drop two episodes in a single week, both of which I've been looking forward to for a while, so fingers crossed. Oh, and before I go, a small history factoid. If Ranulf Flambard is named as the first ever prisoner held in the Tower of London, then according to one book I was just reading, the last ever prisoners ever held in the Tower of London were Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Apparently they were there because they went AWOL from their National Service Unit, and the unit was supposedly based in or around the Tower of London. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but you got to love London. It has the wildest stories. All right, see you next week. Bye.